0: CHAPTER 3, PART 2 OF A HISTORY OF THE CHRISTIAN CHURCH DURING THE FIRST SIX CENTURIES This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A HISTORY OF THE CHRISTIAN CHURCH DURING THE FIRST SIX CENTURIES BY SAMUEL CHEATHAM CHAPTER 3, PART 2, THE EARLY STRUGGLES OF THE CHURCH What were the conditions which previously limited the freedom of Christians is not absolutely certain, but it is probable that the Edict of 311, which conferred freedom of worship on existing bodies of Christians, did not give them the liberty of making converts. If so, this restriction was removed. When the emperors give full liberty to every form of worship, quote, whereby the divinity in heaven may be propitiated, close quote they seem still to retain the power of putting down any foul and impious orgies which they judged likely rather to offend than to propitiate the supreme deity but the essential thing is that the edict frankly recognized the corpus christianorum the great organized body of christians which had spread itself over the empire it is thus indicated that the policy of the state had undergone a complete revolution the almost despairing effort of diocletian and galerius had been to put down a force which they thought tended to dissolve the social coherence of the empire at a time when it was so sorely in need of unity in the edict of constantine and licinius we see that this attempt is abandoned the persecutions were reckoned before the end of the fourth century to be ten in number so as to correspond to the ten plagues of egypt the persecutions according to this account were those under Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Septimius Severus, Maximin, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, Diocletian. The artificial and fallacious character of this enumeration was long ago pointed out by Augustine. It is impossible to determine with certainty the number of those who suffered. Origen, as we have seen, thought it inconsiderable up to his own time though at a still earlier date irenaeus speaks of the multitude of martyrs who had passed from earth to god and in the persecutions under decius and diocletian at any rate we can scarcely doubt that very many bore torture and death for the faith of christ It was only natural that events terrible in themselves and deeply affecting a great community should be repeated in succeeding generations with much unconscious exaggeration true and accurate accounts even notarial records of many martyrdoms were no doubt preserved but round these clustered a large number of legends which either arose from the excited imagination of a troublous time or were composed as works of edification rather than of history Additional infamy was in this way heaped upon the persecutors, and additional glory bestowed upon the martyrs. Augustine lamented the scarcity of genuine acts which might be read in the services. While the Church was suffering from the opposition of the civil government and the passions of the mob, it was also attacked by the literary champions of heathendom. The dislike and suspicion which educated heathen felt for Christianity found definite expression in various writings. The lost oration of Fronto seems to have been an advocate's defense, on legal grounds, of the proceedings against them under Marcus Aurelius. Lucian's light raillery, which found in the Greek mythology, subjects for his wit and sarcastic humor, was also turned against Christianity. He does not merely echo the popular prejudice. It is evident from his parody that he had some real knowledge of the manners and customs of christians but he only regards the church as one of the varied outgrowths of human folly and superstition his history of peregrinus proteus was no doubt intended at least in part to ridicule the supposed credulity of christians which made them an easy prey to a clever knave but it shows incidentally how a heathen noticed without admiring their brotherly love their courage in facing death their belief in immortality. Very different from the light mockery of Lucian is the eager hatred of his contemporary Celsus, a man of keen and vigorous intellect who had really studied, though without sympathy or insight, both Christianity and Judaism. Skepticism has hardly discovered an objection to Christianity which is not contained in some shape or other in the work of Celsus. Modern ingenuity has done little more than elaborate the arguments of the ancient dialectian. The credibility of the gospel history in general, the reality of the incarnation and the resurrection, the belief in the atonement, the very idea of a special revelation of God, are attacked with no mean ability. He utterly repudiates the view of nature in which man appears as a final cause of the world and of all things that are therein, and attempts to set greek philosophy and religion above the teaching of christianity which he accuses of having borrowed and spoiled many of the doctrines of plato further he reproaches christians with their gross corporeal conception as he thinks it of god and things divine at the same time he attempts to set the heathen polytheism and idolatry in a more attractive light and contends that they were not incompatible with the worship of one supreme deity altogether probably no more vigorous assailant than celsus has ever attacked christianity the attack of so skillful a polemic is a sufficient proof that christianity was regarded as an important phenomenon however men might assume contempt for it when a man like celsus of high ability cultivation and learning thought it worth while to give it so careful an examination It had certainly gained attention beyond the ranks of slaves and artisans the remarkable work of philostratus the life of apollonius of tyana may also be considered as a part of the polemic against christianity though of a very different kind from the uncompromising attack of celsus apollonius was a real person who attained some fame as a magician in the later part of the first century but the life written in the early years of the third, is probably so highly idealized as to be little more than a romance with a purpose. It belongs to the synchronistic age of Septimius Severus, when the view began to prevail that the wise man should choose what was best and noblest from all religions without venturing to assert that any one was absolutely true. Hence, Philostratus, who was evidently acquainted with the gospel history, attempts to set up Apollonius as a kind of neo-Pythagorean leader and type. He attributes to him the nobleness, the unselfish devotion, the readiness to encounter persecution and death, which are seen in the greatest heroes. He contends not that Christianity is false, but that Pythagorism deserves to be set above it as a practical religious power. Philosophy, in truth, took at this time a more religious direction, and was not wholly disinclined to satisfy its aspirations from a system which had so high claims to be a divine revelation as Christianity. But the man whom the early Christians singled out as their most implacable enemy, their bitterest opponent, was the Neoplatonist Porphyry. His fifteen books against the Christians were the most famous production of heathen polemics in the third century, and were thought worthy of refutation by such men as Methodius of Tyre. Eusebius of Caesarea, and Apollinaris of Laodicea. The refutations have perished, and but a few fragments remain of the work of Periphery. To judge from these fragments, Periphery made his principal attack on the scriptures, attempting to show that they were unworthy of the divine inspiration attributed to them. He examined the book of the prophet Daniel, contending that it was not written in the sixth century before Christ, But by a later writer who lived under Antiochus Epiphanes, and that it was in fact not prophecy but history. He found great fault with such expositors as Origen, who shrouded the plain facts of Israelitish history in a veil of allegory. He fastened on the dispute between St. Peter and St. Paul in Galatia as an event discreditable to the heads of the community, and he found inconsistencies in the gospel history itself. To him also appear to be due some questions which have frequently reappeared in controversy, such as, why did Christians reject sacrifice which God Himself had instituted in the Old Covenant? Yet, with all his keen dialectic against portions of the Christian scheme, Periphery was probably not without admiration for the character of Christ Himself. The Neoplatonists were not averse to the thought of a dwelling of God among men. What they disputed was the claim of Christ Jesus to be, in an absolute and exclusive sense, God manifest in the flesh, and it was probably with a view of setting up a rival manifestation of the divinity that Periphery and Iamblichus wrote The Life of Pythagoras, the, quote, good spirit dwelling in Samos, close quote, in which the great teacher of old Greece is magnified into divine proportions the same line of thought reappears in Hierocles, whose truth-loving words are known to us only in the refutation by Eusebius. He seems to have set himself to show that miracles, in any case, only proved the existence of superior power in the wonder-worker, and that the miracles of Apollonius of Tyana were greater and better attested than those of Jesus Christ. He would grant, apparently, that Christ was divine, but not the one, only God in truth it can scarcely be doubted that neoplatonism was to many minds a schoolmaster to bring them to christ for it changed the whole character of ancient philosophy with such men as plotinus and proclus philosophy is no longer purely an affair of dialectic they are seers and ecstatics looking for divine revelation through their ascetic and contemplative life eager to be freed from the chains of sense And to have a nearer view of heavenly beauty their system if system it can be called was accepted by a large number of the most cultivated men throughout the empire and when the minds of men were once familiar with the thought of a revelation of god to man of a divine radiance poured into the soul they were more ready to acknowledge the revelation of god in christ and the life-giving influence of the holy spirit the great and victorious answer to heathen calumny was found in the lives of christians with praying and dying they overcame the world but they fought also an intellectual combat with great vigor and success in the first place they had to repel the popular calumnies which pursued them against the accusation of atheism they alleged the piety of christians in their lives as visible to their heathen neighbors and explained the nature of their spiritual worship charged with unnatural crimes, they pointed out that their religion bound them before all things to purity and holiness of life. Accused of treason against the government, they referred to their prayers for the emperor and their quiet submission to a persecuting power. If it was said that the misfortunes of the empire were due to the progress of Christianity, they retorted that it might with at least equal justice be said to be due to the persecution of Christianity." heathen rhetoricians and philosophers were at last driven back upon the principle that men ought to accept and maintain in matters of religion the customs and rights derived from their forefathers the last refuge of skeptical conservatism against this heathen maxim of the duty of submission in all cases to existing authority and tradition the early apologists protest they contend with great vigor for the rights of conscience and private judgment if they desert their country's customs it is only because they have discovered them to be impious custom is by no means identical with truth it is our duty to forsake the customs of our country when better and holier laws require it we must obey him who is above all lords yet though obedience would be due to the gospel of christ even if it were an innovation they contended that it was none it existed already in the days of abraham and moses nay from the beginning of the world they represented god in christ as the source and fount of all good even in the heathen world the same word which wrought in hebrew prophets produced also all the truth and right and nobleness which existed among the gentiles all who have lived in accordance with the divine word or reason were christians even though like socrates they were thought atheists The great achievements of lawgivers and philosophers were not without the word, though imperfectly apprehended. What was seen incomplete and dispersed in the old world was at last found complete and perfect in Christ. The many phrases in which heathens expressed their sense of one great and good God over all, in spite of a polytheistic form of religion, were, quote, the utterances of a soul naturally Christian, close quote. And while they defended themselves, They did not spare their adversaries pointing out with great frankness the follies and frequent impurities of heathen worship perhaps the earliest of the formal defenses of christianity is the letter in which the unknown writer points out to his inquiring friend diogenetus the absurdities of heathenism the inadequacy of judaism the excellence of the christian religion when the emperor hadrian visited athens A defense of christianity was presented to him by the bishop quadratus and another by a philosopher named aristides the former of whom an old man says that he had actually seen persons upon whom some of the lord's miracles had been wrought not long after aristides ariston of pella wrote a defense of christianity in the form of a dialogue between a jewish christian named jason and papiscus an alexandrian jew in which stress is laid on the argument from prophecy. Claudius Apollinaris, also a bishop of Hierapolis, and the rhetorician Miltiades, presented to the emperor Marcus Aurelius apologies which had in their day great repute. But the great age of Christian apologetic is the period of hope and fear which coincides nearly with the reigns of the Antonines. It was then that Justin Martyr, a Christian who retained the philosopher's gown, wrote and presented to the rulers of the world his defences against the unjust charges heaped upon christians and pleaded for the protection of the laws of the empire let christians he urges at least not suffer except as malefactors let not their very name be a crime when all kinds of monstrosities rear their heads in safety let a philosophic emperor consider that the very same word which inspired philosophers spoke in clearer tones through prophets and apostles. He pleaded in vain. The vigor of his attack on the pretensions of paganism in his second defense probably brought about his own end. His pupil, Tatian the Syrian, attacked the perversions of Greek morality and philosophy with great vigor. Athenagoras, in the plea for the Christians, which he addressed to Marcus Aurelius, in a quiet and respectful tone commends to the favor of the emperor his fellow believers whom he vindicates from the charges so often brought against them probably to the same sovereign and about the same time melito the learned bishop of sardis addressed the memorial in which he sets forth the injury done to christians under cover of the imperial edicts by evil men who desired nothing but plunder and insisted that the continued prosperity of the empire since the days of augustus was alone sufficient to show that the star of christ was propitious theophilus bishop of antioch in his three books to atolycus set himself more particularly to repel the scoffing objections of his acquaintance atolycus to christian teaching on the nature of god and the resurrection and again at his friend's request for further information he went on to speak of the creation and destiny of man and the venerable antiquity of the Hebrew scriptures. His style is clear and agreeable. Hermaeus, in his worrying of the pagan philosophers, retorts upon the heathen and contradictions and absurdities with which they charged Christianity. The Octavius of the rhetorician Minucius Felix, a dialogue in the style of Cicero, contains perhaps of all the apologetic writings The clearest statement of the great questions at issue between christian and pagan as they presented themselves to educated men in the second century caecilius who undertakes the defense of heathenism and the attack on christianity is permitted by the dialogue writer to state his case with unsparing vigor and the christian octavius replies if always with earnestness yet calmly and fairly in the end Casilius admits the victory of his friends in the words, We are both conquerors. He has conquered me. I have triumphed over error. Tertullian burst forth with his glowing southern rhetoric against the ignorant hatred of Christians which prevailed in the empire. They were treated with a harshness which violated the first principles of right, yet they were good subjects. Though they offered no incense to the emperor, their lives were purer, their religion was nobler than that of their heathen neighbors who could think of the old mythologic fables without scorn if celsus is in many respects the type of those who from age to age have attacked christianity with cleverness and learning origen is equally the type of the honest able learned and laborious defender he fastens upon the work of celsus which seems to have been a hundred years in the world without meeting with an adequate refutation and deals with it, clouds by clouds, the attacks of the pagan on the credibility of the gospel history, on the cardinal doctrines of Christianity, on the idea of revelation, his attempts to set philosophy above the teaching of Christ, and polytheism above the true worship, his misconceptions of Christian ideas, all these are taken in turn and exposed or refuted. Christian worship, says Origen in the reign of Decius, quote, Shall one day prevail over the whole world. End of chapter 3